My guest today is Hoffman teacher Maria Camara. She's the co-owner of the Spain Hoffman Institute and a fellow teacher here in the States as well. In our interview, we talk about her journey with both the Hoffman Institute and Buddhism, which at the core, both of these are the same. They focus on cultivating love and compassion. And you know what? Cultivating love and compassion is exactly what Maria has devoted her entire life to. Now, one thing that is deep in my heart from our interview is when she tenderly shared about how her Buddhist practice of contemplating change and impermanence helped her be present for her beloved aunt in her last waking moments. This was a tender, powerful, and inspirational interview, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sharon. Happy to be here. So I want to start with Hoffman, since it is something that is deep in your family and something that spans several continents for you. Tell me, when did Hoffman enter your life initially? Well, the first time I heard about the Hoffman process was through my father, because he, well, he started running, owning the, the license for the center in Spain. And then he encouraged me to do it when I was 23 years old. So I was pretty young at the time. And well, it, in a way, it was quite contradictory, the fact of trying to overcome the parents' um, influence or be free from the influence and at the same time taking the Hoffman from my father. So Okay, wait, let me let's pause here. What you're saying is you went and did the Hoffman process and the teacher was your father. No, no. He wasn't there, obviously he was not present, but he's the one who made made it possible for me to to do it, who talked told me about it, who who facilitate the the conditions so that I could participate and take the Hoffman process. So no, that would be impossible, let's say. I know, right. So, and the teachers there were, uh, did you know them beforehand because of your, you know, because it's your father's center and you knew the teachers or were they as good as strangers? I didn't know them. So, but they, they knew my father, but they were guest teachers. So they were not like Spanish close people. So I didn't know them at the time. But still, the situation, the context, in that context, my father was quite present. And so how did it change your relationship to your father, having both of you been graduates of the process? I think it 
it was the beginning of something. I think I could find, I mean, when I did the process, something that came across as one of the biggest take takeaways is the fact of me realizing that I can have my own path, whether my parents' paths are nearby or not. Before doing the process, I felt like my path was totally enmeshed with my parents' uh, lives. And then the process gave me that space, that clarity to see that I don't need to reject what my parents could teach me or what I could learn from them. And at the same time, I don't need to do, to do it or to follow it the same way as they do. So that place of freedom was really a turn, turning point. And then from there, it's been a long way because after doing my own process, then I, as I was a psychologist at the time, so I decided to, to train as a teacher and then doing it with my father. So he was, among others, teaching me how to teach the Huffman process. And then we've been working together since. So now I'm 46, so 23 years of working together. And it hasn't always been easy. It started there because before that, well, my parents divorced when I was a child. So I always lived with my mother. So my relationship with my father was more distant. And due to the fact of working together, we had the opportunity to clear many things that were not talk about, to cry, to fight. It was doing the process in real time, let's say. No need to go and sleep somewhere for seven days. It's just basically every day for you two. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there were, I mean, I was doing the observation processes as we do during the training first year. One needs to observe. And I, I was observing and, and pouring and crying for my own story when I could see my father in the room. So it was quite emotional and, and, and a cleanse. I felt like it was cleaning a lot of the pain because somehow it's true that in seven days you can work deep things, but you cannot like transform or, or, or clean or grief everything that happened for a lifetime. So, and all of, I mean, everyone who has already done the process may know that by now that there is so much to process, to integrate after you've done the, the week. And I think I could do that with the help of, of working for Huffman with my father. Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine... I mean, I, I, I also got a lot out of the process and a lot of healing, uh, especially around my relationship with family, but um, to have them be a part of it and to train me to be a teacher and then to run a center together, whew, that's, that's real integration. Yeah. As, as, as I said, it, it hasn't been uh, a, a year time work. It's been years of of work, of communication, of, of, yeah, of hardships, hard hardships. And, and I think the fact of, of me starting to teach in the U S 
was also a great help because then I could experience what is Hoffman teaching the Hoffman process in another country, in another language, and with no family members around. So I found that added another level of, of depth and of, of freedom in how much I can be doing this work and sharing it with my father or not and still do what I am there to do, like helping other people to, to have deep experiences of healing. I like how you said it was, you know, your take takeaway was realizing I can have my own path. And what that meant was I don't need to reject it. And I also don't need to copy it exactly the way you've done it. Somewhere in the middle of rejection and completely copying is your authenticity. And maybe it looks similar, right? You did choose to continue with being a Hoffman teacher. So it looks similar, but it is authentic to you. And it's obvious in our styles. I can realize that we have different styles of teaching, of understanding some parts of the process or different vision on how to apply things and at the same time respect each other's vision. So I think it's been a lot of work to do that, to reach that point. But I think that's the only way where I can feel I'm being myself. Even what you just said, in the presence of one of our parent figures to accept, hey, that's your style. This is my style. Yours is not better than mine. It's just different. And, and to respect that, that's a big journey, I can imagine, to have arrived there. I have to say that it takes a lot of work and I happen by circumstances of life. I happen to experience that with both of my parents because I also share with my mother, the Buddhist context, the Buddhist community, because my mother also, she's a Buddhist practitioner and I learned, oh, I heard about Buddhism through her. And again, we share a lot on that. And at the same time, it's the same story. We have different styles, different ways of applying it, of, of uh, expressing ourselves, of li live, live it. And at the same time, we can respect each other. So that was maybe my, my mission in this life. <sighs> yeah, because how fascinating that it happened with both parents. Totally, totally. Was the journey towards um, having this authenticity and, and accepting, oh, it's different styles and yet we respect each other. Was the journey similar with uh, your father and your mother? I would say that there was similar dynamics in that it took quite a bit of fight or of, of disagreements, of finding hard to find a place with, being with, that, with them being present. So yeah, there was some struggles with, in the same line, probably has to see with my own patterns of like, I know I have a pattern that I find it hard to to find my own space or to set the boundaries to create my own space, for example, or to have a voice or so maybe there are some different styles because my relationship is not the same with both of my parents, but they are common, common traits, I would say. 
That is, that is amazing. And Buddhism was, was that a similar thing Did you know, this journey of, I don't want to reject it. I also don't want to do it the same. You know, Hoffman came into your life at 23. When did Buddhism come into your life? Buddhism came earlier because I was seven actually when, when the first time I met a, a Tibetan Lama, but obviously when one is seven, one doesn't decide anything. But it's only later when I was 15 that I started to, to decide to try to practice meditation and attend to some of, of the workshops and, and then start to go to a Buddhist center in France. So let's say that from 15 onward, I've been interested and willing to, to learn to practice, to, to contemplate all the Buddhist approach uh, to this day where I'm still like knowing that it's a medicine for today's crazy world, I would say. I'm getting this visual of you being 15 and deciding to go deeper into this practice, this uh, Buddhist practice and contemplation, and also a 23-year-old who got serious about her own personal growth. And it strikes me that that is very abnormal for a, a typical 15-year-old and a typical 23-year-old. Is that right? Have you always felt different than your other peers at your age group? Sometimes I have, but I also had my naughty, well- teenager time I, so actually and this is a really funny story where you can see the hand of my of my mother there uh, actually the way that my mom managed to bring me the first time to buddhist center was inviting the, the guy i was in love with so that that was her tricky way of bringing me in but and after when I went there, then I, I really liked it there. I liked how meaningful was the things I was listening to. And there were people of my age. So in one way, I would, yeah, I, I was feeling a little different if I would compare to people in my class. But I, I was feeling more similar if I would compare to all other teenagers that were there at the time. Wow. And so it worked. She invited the guy that you love and you went one time and, and you, were, you were committed. Totally. And he never went back. But I met, I met the, the thing that really touched me more was to see this very old Tibetan Lama who now passed away. But he was so compassionate, like a living, a saint, I would say, someone who was so inspiring and touched me so much that since then I continue going there. Wow. So Buddhism has been in your family since your mom, but is your mom the first generation that uh, went towards Buddhism or has that always been, is that a generational thing going back to grandparents, great-grandparents? Well, I think my mother, my mom was the first one to introduce it in the family, but uh, after a few years, it, my grandparents also met this another old Tibetan Lama, and they got really inspired, even though they, they were Catholics at the time. But something good about Buddhism is that it goes beyond religion. That is really um, like a philosophy of 
cultivating love and compassion that are universal like qualities. So they were also participating in some of the events and they loved to, to meet with that Lama. So some of my uncles and aunties. So it, it's been around the family forever. Now, cultivating love and compassion. I, I hear that and I look at our world today and it's um, quite contrary to what I see and what's going on. That doesn't mean there isn't love and compassion, but maybe we need to get everybody to become Buddhists. Either that or do the Hoffman process, right? Well, well, I think, and that's something I, I can see in, in common or something that both work for the same purpose, which is that is cultivating love and compassion because, and not only the Hoffman process, so Buddhism, many other traditions are agreeing on how much we need to cultivate that to compensate the negative tendencies or patterns that human beings are going through. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm for it. I, I sign in to, for that. That's why I try as much as I can to remind myself again and again through working at Hoffman, through my meditation practices, to remind myself that that's the, the most important thing in life beyond everything else which not so easy to remember always. Yeah. And so has there been a time, you're 46 today, you started this path at 15. There's probably been some hard moments uh, in there. Two questions. Have there, has, can you share a time where Buddhism really, or your practice, your contemplation, your, your learning really helped you navigate? And can you share a time where it was hard um, to connect to your practice based on a circumstance that was happening in your life? I think I can think of two different moments and both answer the same question, actually. Well, the first moment I think of is very recent because it happened last week that my auntie, my dear auntie, passed away. Of course, that was really hard because it's really hard to lose someone you love. And still now I'm, I'm touched by it, of course. But at the same time, I can see that how Buddhist, the Buddhist teachings and all what I have learned is helping me navigating through it in an easier way than if I wouldn't have known Buddhism. Not only of how much Buddhism prepares you for change and impermanence because that's something we are like encouraged encouraged to contemplate on on daily basis like how everything is impermanent and not only that but also how much the buddhist uh, approach talks about death and how to accompany someone when he's dying and how to what is the best thing to do which Nowadays, most people don't talk about and nobody tells you what to do when someone is dying, what, what is most helpful for that person and what is not. So that, that's been really helpful. And, and that's been just last week. So I can think of that very, very special moment and how much 
Buddhism inspired me and is still inspiring me. And I know I still have a long way to go, but I'm grateful to have that resource on this moment that all of us will go through sooner or later. Wow. Was she also practicing Buddhism? She, she was not uh, like practicing on a daily basis, but he had met some of, of the Tibetan lamas we, we are like learning from. And he, he's been uh, like learning uh, some of it. So she, she was familiarized with this Buddhist world, let's say. And were you, you talked about accompanying someone as they're transitioning. Were you there with her? Yeah, I was, I mean, I was there just the, the night before she passed away. So she passed away that morning around 8 a.m. So I was there the night before. And something that, that really touched me was she, I mean, she was, she was, she died of cancer after a long process. And then for the last day, she couldn't talk. She could only move her hand. But miraculously, just the night before she was passing away, she suddenly she opened her eyes and started talking. And the person who was there at the time was me. So she talked, she only talked to me. And then she said, the last thing she was asking me about a few things, she said, I had a nice scarf. That was so sweet. I mean, and then she she told me the last thing she said is, I'm ready to go. And then she didn't say anything else. And that was, wow, mind-blowing because what, I mean, that's the best way to go, yeah? Feeling that the person was ready and I could, somehow we could talk about it. And I knew she was listening to me. I, like, told her how much I love her and thank her for all she did. And I could do that because I was in, in a place of more peace and not taken away by sorrow. And that was thank, thanks to all what I heard from Buddhism, that the best thing you can do is to keep yourself in this place of more calm. And that helps the person who is living to live in a peaceful way. I think it was just amazing that you were the one that was there and you were the one who got to hear her last words and her last words being, I'm ready to go, giving you permission to let her go, giving her permission to let go. Totally. Yeah. And that, I think that that's what we all aim for, yeah, to be able to, to live at peace with everything sorted out and, and also having those around us accepting that now I'm going. It's time. Well, I think we, we aim to, to live our lives at peace, but also leave our lives at peace. And sometimes those two don't both happen. And I think you're so right. As a society, we don't, we pretend it's permanent. We pretend we're never going to lose our loved ones or our life. And we live our day to day as if that's, the permanent reality. And I think contemplating on, on, on death, contemplating on change, which is something we also do at, at, at the Hoffman process. We, we, we realize how things end, how everything changes. And I think doing that 
it helps us live in our day-to-day from a different place. So it's not only preparing us for death, but also preparing us for life. And the other thing I like is, and you mentioned it, it doesn't mean you don't feel sorrow or that you don't feel sadness. It means that you're not overcome by it in that moment where you needed to be present for her. Maybe it also helps me in the grief because, of course, one has to grieve it. But I can do my meditations. I can send her light. I can, the way I'm dealing with it, it's much better than if I wouldn't have that spiritual practice. I believe so. Well, and I know from talking to others in my own experience that when we lose a loved one, we can be hard on ourselves. Like, why didn't I call more? I shouldn't have said this and maybe replaying these moments. And it sounds like your practice helps you have a clean connection between you and her and you and yourself. And, and then it lends a helping hand to the grieving process. Yeah, because that's one of the steps of grief. Yeah. What if I would have the bargaining? Yeah, totally. In your both of your worlds, Hoffman and Buddhism, you're a teacher of both, right? I teach the Hoffman process, and I also give give workshops on introduction to Buddhism, to meditation. I'm also learning at the same time. So it's like with the Hoffman process that even though we teach, we continue learning because the path for self-development never ends, right? But yeah, I'm teaching both, in both languages, in Spanish and in English. That's amazing. Did you, could you have imagined this, your, your 23-year-old self, that at 46 you would be a teacher of both, in both English and Spanish? Actually not. <laughs> I wouldn't. No, not at all. No, it, it's been such a gift. I feel very fortunate, honestly. I love what you said that as teachers, and I think this is an important note to any teacher of anything, but certainly teachers who witness people's transformation um, and healing, you know, that even though we are teachers, we're not done. Our journey doesn't end at being a teacher. Our journey continues. So we are a teacher and a continued student. But um, I, I find that to be one of the most important things that if we're going to be successful teachers, we have to hold ourselves to keep being the student as well. Totally. And we see that when we teach the Huffman process that, or even doing coaching or at any context, when I've, I work with people, I realize how much I learn from each and every person I work with. I have a similar experience. I want to ask you one last thing, and that is um, your experience at the actual process. So you took it at 23. Did you take it again ever, or was that the only time you took it? I did take it again in the U.S., actually, and that was seven years ago. Of course, I already knew every single piece of it because I, I was a teacher for, for, for a long time already, but I took a lot from it. it it's like different layers like an, in an onion whether it's the Hoffman process or any other personal development work as, as I said before there is no end to how much one can learn so and I think also when I was 23 there were many things that I hadn't experienced and and make sense of like my love life for example wasn't 
that rich that, at that age. So I couldn't see the outcomes or the consequences of my patterns as well as I did later in life. I think I got a lot from each, uh, the two of, of, of them. Yeah. What, what led you to take it seven years ago? Well, one reason was that we had uh, rejuvenated the program into like taking away one day. So I wanted to try it. And the best way to try it is to participate in it. And then on the other hand, I also wanted to, to live the experience of, of the process from the other side because I was already a teacher for like 10 years. And I wanted to, to experience again what was it like. And then, as I said, the third reason is that many things have happened since. So quite, quite few reasons to do it. And is there a moment as a student, whether it was the time you did it as a 23-year-old or the time seven years ago, is there a moment where it's one of those pivotal, magical moments that you can recall having as a student? Yeah, I think actually in both cases, the moment that I felt um, like finding stillness and peace is when, when it comes to a point where the compassion towards parents is being experienced at the deepest level. And at that point, I felt like I, there is nothing that I need to expect from them. Like whatever they didn't give me, they will not. And it's not up to them anymore. It's up to me. That turning point where I was taking responsibility of my life was liberating. And at the same time, it gave me so many choices. I felt like, okay, that's my life. I, there's nobody there just getting in the way. It's just me with myself, right? So that felt so, yeah, liberating. This is one of my favorite questions because, you know, as teachers, we, you never know what is landing. What is that pivotal heart opening moment for people? And so getting the, the privilege of asking people this question on the podcast is always so puts a huge smile on my face because what I end up learning is that every single minute that we are in the mode of teaching, we are op cracking open somebody's heart. We just don't know which minute that is. And it's always fascinating to hear it. Totally. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for asking, Sharon. Maria, this interview has come to an end, even though I could continue to talk to you for hours. It's, um, it's amazing. I can feel the impact of you doing your work for so many years and with such intensity and devotion, because when I'm in your presence, I end up having a calmer vibe. It's almost like you said, this is how I felt when I saw that amazing Tibetan Lama. It's like you bring that out in people as well. So thank you. Thank you, Sharon. That's, it's been a touching interview, I have to say. All right, Maria, I love you. Thank you for being one of our guests. And we will see you all to the listeners next week. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, 
please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.